I started drag before I started therapy. In drag, I'm braver than in therapy. I do drag performances about issues that I've never addressed with my therapist. In therapy, I still struggle to find the right words to actually say out loud what I'm thinking. In drag, I don't have to use words. I can use facial expressions, dance, music, makeup, clothes. And sometimes, standing stripped naked on a stage in front of a hundred strangers is easier than putting my emotions into words. For me, doing drag is putting together a show. It's being on stage, performing, seeing the excitement of the crowd, having a good time. But sometimes, it is also a way to cope. I started drag because of my work. It became like a recommendation from my analyst. He's like, I feel like you are really disconnected from yourself and you're not connecting with your body. So he was like, you should do something that works with your body, with your feelings. So you should do some acting. You should take some acting classes. So I took it to the gayest level possible and I ended up, <laughs> ended up doing drag. This is Tanya Trash, a drag queen from Buenos Aires. In 2019, Tanya and I are both judges for the drag king contest Carrera de Reyes. You might remember it from episode one. You know, the same show where I did my first ever drag performance in Argentina. I won the contest, so now I get to be the judge. The place is packed. By now, the Carrera has become pretty popular. The organizers are still busy organizing, the performers are ready to perform, and the audience is ready to go wild. The atmosphere is great. I hadn't met Tanya before the Carrera. I reached out to her on Instagram because other drag artists had mentioned her as someone with interesting stories. Meeting her in person is surprisingly relaxed. I was a bit nervous about judging a drag show, but Tanya is very approachable and makes it easy. I learned that she's a kind and fun judge, and we bond over the fact that both of us like to change right after a show, that we don't necessarily enjoy wearing makeup and impractical clothing. Many drag artists feel the exact opposite, though. After the Carrera, Tanya leaves the club. It's already 2 a.m. and pretty chilly. Right outside the building, she sees a lesbian couple clearly looking for help. They were, like, crying because they were kind of robbed. They left the place, and when they were waiting for the bus, someone tried to rob them, they couldn't. So they came back to Felisa, to the door. They were like, we are scared to wait for the bus out there. And they asked someone if they could, like, wait with them for, like, 20 minutes till the bus came. The couple asks a group of queers who are also leaving the club. And the group just says... Sorry, no, we're actually really tired. And then they just leave. Tanya is shocked. I was like, fuck. We have too much with heterosexuality, like, attacking us every day. So it's like, we should help each other. In our first interview back in 2019, Tanya brought up this moment several times. I was surprised by her anger. I mean, I get that it seemed very mean that nobody wanted to help. But I would probably have found excuses for the people who didn't want to get involved. Now that I know Tanya's story, I get why she was so upset. But to understand Tanya, we have to meet Pablo. This is a journey through the lives of drag performers all around the world. And also the story of how I became the drag king Maria Moschus. I am Taina and this is Drag Stories. Season 1, Argentina. Pablo is Tanya's everyday name. 
As a kid, Pablo starts to volunteer. First as a firefighter when he's 13 years old and then for the Red Cross doing disaster response. That means you react whenever a disaster happens, which could be anything, an airplane crash, a flood, a shooting. How you respond depends on the catastrophe. Sometimes it's evacuation or medical assistance and sometimes it's counseling or building infrastructure. Pretty tough shit. It was like a 16-year-old kid responding to a plane crash doing psychosocial support. It's like, what I was doing there, you know? It, like, it, could, it could have damaged me. It was like more addictive, in a, in a more addictive way. So I loved it. Helping people is Pablo's thing. So after he has finished school, Pablo becomes a social worker. He works mostly in the so-called Vichas. The Vichas are informal settlements inside and around cities in Argentina. The infrastructure in Vichas is often pretty bad. No access to water, no paved roads or no sewage system. Some Vichas are small, others house thousands of people. In 2011, there were over 800 Vichas in and around Buenos Aires. That's a lot. When I lived in Buenos Aires, I knew the Vichas existed, but they weren't part of my everyday life. Even though there are several Vichas in central spots in Buenos Aires, like the central bus station, but you can easily avoid them. I remember the first time I arrived in Buenos Aires was at that bus station at night. And when I left the station, I felt scared and weird. So I just immediately entered a taxi and left. If you're rich, that's mostly what you do. You avoid. And then you spend your days in neighborhoods like Palermo or Villa Crespo, and your view, or in this case, my view, of the city does not include Vichas. As a social worker in the Vichas, Pablo deals with a lot of poverty, families that have lived in the Vichas for generations, migrant workers from other countries, and lots of rightfully angry and frustrated teenagers. Pablo mostly works for the Child Protection Service. The job is hard, but Pablo generally likes it. Besides being a social worker, Pablo keeps volunteering, in Argentina and abroad. In 2016, when Pablo is 34, he uses his vacation days to go volunteer for the White Helmets. The White Helmets is also known as Syria Civil Defense. It is a volunteer organization doing humanitarian work for refugees from and in Syria. Pablo joins the White Helmets in Lebanon, a country next to Syria. Lebanon is heavily affected by the war in Syria. In 2016, the country takes in over one million Syrian refugees, which means that one quarter of the population in Lebanon consists of Syrian refugees. The situation is really, really bad. Pablo has seen humanitarian crisis before, in Argentina, in Haiti, in Chile. He thinks he can handle it. But when he comes back to Buenos Aires, Pablo realizes Lebanon was too much. Immediately after I came back from Lebanon, I spent two days vomiting and like almost hospitalized. And it was immediately after I arrived with the airplane, you know, it's like I touched Argentinian floor and I started puking. And it's so like interesting the way I, my body chose to express the stress, you know, like all the things that I ate, all the things that I lived and had to go through during those those months in Lebanon, you know, like they went out. I think that's when I said, I'm not processing this. 
as healthy as I was thinking I was doing. Because before, in other emergencies, in other missions, I was like, okay, I'm back, you know? This time, it's not okay. Pablo is diagnosed with PTSD. PTSD is short for post-traumatic stress disorder. In Lebanon, Pablo has been confronted with so much suffering that there was no space left for himself and his own struggles. Pablo has experienced trauma. He starts to dissociate a lot, meaning he disconnects from the situation to mentally escape from it. It's very common in humanitarian workers. We tend to dissociate ourselves in order to be at peace with our minds when we're working. So there was like this work to reattach what was dissociated. Pablo feels constantly exhausted and stressed at the same time. He stops caring for his body. He doesn't eat well, he doesn't move a lot. He puts work first, volunteering first, trying to ignore his own feelings, his own pain. But at a certain point, Pablo thinks, I can't go on like this. I need someone to help me. A couple of weeks later, I started doing therapy. The therapist thinks that Pablo should reconnect his mind with his body. He wants Pablo to do theater. And you already know what happened. Three weeks later, I was like learning how to use makeup <laughs> because I transformed what he recommended into the gayest therapy possible, which was, I'm not doing theater, I'm doing drag. <laughs> If I'm going to have to reconnect with my feelings, I'm going to do it like going to the extreme. So I'm becoming a drag queen. So at 35, Pablo starts drag as a therapy device. Like, no pressure. How do you even do that? So someone recommended me, you know, this is like huge drag queen who was Electra Trash, and you should like get in touch with her. So that's what I did. And she was like, yeah, sure, let's meet. So I went there and it was like, I'm totally crazy. I just came from a lot of PTSD situations. <laughs> and it's like, I'm doing drag for like a therapy thing. It was like, I love it. Everyone here is damaged, so... <laughs> You will fit in just like perfect. And I kind of did. A bunch of mentally ill queers putting glitter on their faces. This might be one of the best descriptions of a drag family. Maybe this seems strange and destructive, but many drag families work like that. They form a community where things can be discussed and processed in a very special way that you don't really find anywhere else. When you're in a house, you know, it's like you have your mother, your drug mother and your drug sisters and everyone is like spending a lot of time and a lot of money doing their outfits, their wigs, preparing the idea, the concepts. And while you do that, you just spend time with them and you get to meet them and you get to create, you know, a sense of, of family. Through this family, Pablo discovers a new part of himself. He calls that part Tanya Trash. The last name Trash refers to Elektra Trash, Tanya's drag mother, who you will meet properly in episode four. So Pablo's therapist has pushed him in the right direction. For Pablo, drag becomes a way to deal with his trauma. Tanya is the healing that Pablo has been looking for. Doing drag is a way that I, let's say, discharge everything that charged me up during the week, the terrible things I usually see, and then, Weekends with drag, like they release all of that. Now, Pablo's weekends are filled with drag. On weekdays, Pablo coordinates lawyers, psychologists and social workers in the Vichas of Buenos Aires. Only very few people at his work know about Tanya. 
Pablo already gets accused of not being objective enough towards his clients because he's openly gay. So the defense went through my social networks and found out that I was a gay person, like pro-abortion, pro-feminism like and stuff. So he made an appeal for annulment of my report based on bias. He's a gay guy defending women. He's not objective. If judges like these knew about Pablo's drag life, it would probably make things even worse. For example, why did I have to make a separate Instagram account? Like Tanya mm -hmm. doesn't have the same account that Pablo because I need to have those words separate because it may affect the victims mm -hmm. that I work with. I don't want to take that risk and jeopardize good mm -hmm. work because of homophobia and like mm -hmm. those kind of stuff. So publicly, Tanya and Pablo are very separate. For example, they have different Instagram accounts. But for Pablo, Tanya is still with him all the time, even helping him at work. Sometimes I see Tanya handling the issue. I don't know how to explain it. Sometimes the way of dissolving a crisis or like to trying to manage it is with quotes from Tanya, <laughs> you know? Tanya is the kind of person who gets shit done, who isn't afraid to speak up or ask difficult questions. Her drag performances are often about heavy topics. One of them starts with a song by the Mexican singer Talia. It's called A Quien Le Importa? Who Cares? At the beginning of the performance, Tanya uses a slow, sad piano version of the song. Who cares about what I do? Who cares what I say? That is the way I am. I won't change. And then suddenly sirens come and the two police officers come to the scene and start like kicking me and moving me out of scene. And you can hear these policemen saying homophobic things and transphobic things to me. And the stage goes completely black and you can hear a heartbeat. And then you hear the testimony of the trans rights activist Diana Sakashan, who was murdered in 2015 for being queer. Hay un tema de una banda que se llama Marzo 76 que dice te podés reír de mí y yo me voy a reír de vos pero hay otros que se ríen de los dos. The idea was to make straight people mostly feel what was to be performing or doing whatever you want to do and then your life being interrupted by, you know, violence and disappearing you just because who you were. So I wanted to make people to go through that experience. You can feel the tension in the air when the lights are out. You are only feeling the heartbeat. And that for me, it's like I'm consuming that in backstage. While I'm dressing up, I'm consuming that tension and I explode when I go back in the more dancey part of it. Tanya enters the stage again, but in a different outfit. This one is bigger, brighter, fancier. She performs the same Talia song, but in a different version. There's a lot of power in having a literal stage to address what's important to you. What you want others to know, to hear, to remember. Tanya uses her stage for messages like these. For her, these performances are like a stress relief. 
They let her translate her feelings and thoughts into something outside of herself, something that can be seen and heard and shared. I'm always talking about murders, transgender murders, abortion, to people that are mostly in a party trying to have, <laughs> trying to have fun. And it's like death, murders, homophobia. It's like, whoa, why am I doing this? <laughs> Poor people. But I think it's this dual thing, and it happens a lot with activism too, you know, it's like it consumes a lot of time, it's devastating sometimes, it's usually unfair, but then you keep doing it. I don't think that's something you choose, like once you have it, it becomes a part of your life. So if being an activist is a part of my life, it should also be in my performances. I can see a lot of myself in Tanya's words. I love doing fun performances. I love performing to sleazy songs by Enrique Iglesias. I love whispering, I can be a hero, baby. I can kiss away the pain, ooh yeah. I love doing a random split on stage. But in the end, most of my performances are pretty political. They deal with topics close to my heart and they often come from a place of trauma. I did several performances about sexualized abuse and harassment. And sometimes I ask myself, and lately I have also asked my therapist, why do I put myself into these positions? I guess because drag can be healing that way. You address something publicly on a stage in a powerful and empowering way. And through that, you let it out of your system. So the power of drug, it makes you feel with such an adrenaline that it, it's definitely curative. It gives you health, it gives you energy, and that really helped me. There is one other little thing I want to say before we continue. I want to recommend you another podcast. It's called Bin ich süß sauer and it's by Sung Un. But he'll tell you more about it in a second. Since his podcast is in German, the next 60 seconds are gonna be in German. Hi, ich bin Songun, komme aus Südkorea und lebe seit 2010 mit meinem Partner in Deutschland. Asiatischen queeren Menschen in Deutschland haben mit wenigstens doppelten Vorurteilen zu kämpfen. Die queeren Menschen, die wir in deutschen Medien sehen, sind mehrheitlich weiß. Und die Asiatinnen werden oft als wortlose Exoten dargestellt. Wir sind oft nur die Asiaten ohne eigene Biografie, Handlungsmacht oder Träume. Diese Vorurteile stammen aus der Stille, in der queeren asiatischen Menschen leben. Die Stille schafft zum einen immer größere Vorurteile uns gegenüber in der Gesellschaft und zum anderen werden wir durch die Stille voneinander isoliert. Wir wissen aber, dass unsere Kulturen und Identitäten nicht auf ein paar Klischees reduzierbar sind. Mit meinem Podcast Bin ich süß-sauer will ich diese Stille brechen, um mehr Akzeptanz, Sichtbarkeit und Mitgefühl für Menschen wie mich im Alltag zu schaffen. Bin ich süß-sauer ist ein monatlicher Interview-Podcast mit asiatischen queeren Menschen in Deutschland. Auf Instagram findet ihr mehr über das Projekt unter binichsüßsauer.podcast. Ich breche die Stille. Macht ihr mit? Drag as an art form can offer access to the full range of emotions. Once, Tanya performs at a more relaxed and fun evening. 
As part of her show, she makes a joke about an Argentinian TV star from the 90s. She likes the joke. She thinks it's a good one. But the worst thing happens. Nobody laughs. I saw the faces and the like, people staring at me like, who the fuck are you talking about? And I realized that. And I was like, wait, raise your hand if you know who I'm talking about. Then Tanya asks the crowd, how old is everybody? And suddenly everything makes sense. The majority of the audience is simply too young to understand the reference. This fits Pablo's self-perception. He sees himself as part of an older queer generation. I mean, yes, Pablo is 13 years older than me, but then again, 38 isn't that old. In straight years it's not, but some argue that queer time works differently. Queer scholar Jack Halberstam has argued that queer lives offer the possibility to not be in sync with heterosexual time markers, like marriage, family or reproduction. This also means that for many queer people, it doesn't matter whether an activity is considered age-appropriate for them, like doing drag shows in dingy nightclubs at 1am. Their lives are on a different timeline anyway. Also, being queer often includes time-warping experiences, like coming outs or gender transitions, which might make you realize you missed your own puberty, so you just do all that stuff now, no matter your age. The queer experience is shaped by larger tragedies as well. They affect whether you even have an older generation, like the AIDS epidemic that has killed so many gay men, trans women and other queers. For queers in Argentina, the AIDS epidemic hasn't been the only generation-defining tragedy. Queer people being disappeared by the dictatorship, like we had our own people disappear just because who they were. We just don't talk about them the way we should be talking about them. All those who survived from the dictatorship, then the pandemic of AIDS basically killed most of them. So the oral history was never transmitted from one queer generation to the other. In 1976, the Argentinian military implemented a coup against the government and installed a military dictatorship, La Junta. It was financially and ideologically supported by the United States, who also facilitated juntas in five other countries in South America. To make this very clear, the United States actively used their power to support extremely brutal military dictatorships in order to install a capitalist, anti-communist and imperialist system. Feel free to use this knowledge the next time somebody is like, Oh, but communism doesn't work because communism means dictatorship and oppression and capitalism, capitalism means freedom, yeah. Fuck that shit. But anyways, in Argentina, military commander Jorge Videla became the head of the dictatorship. He led a fascist, nationalist terror regime based on Catholic values, which basically meant that the heterosexual family was considered the only true form of family and was at the core of the nation. The dictatorship lasted until 1983. In those seven years, many political opponents, or basically anyone Videla didn't like, were imprisoned, tortured and eventually killed, often without further notice to their families and communities. Among these desaparecidos were many queers and especially trans people, which is only slowly being officially acknowledged. 
There were political prisoners that they were detained based on their sexual orientation. Those numbers were never included. Conadep is the National Commission for Detainees and Disappeared People. When organizations asked them in, in the 80s to include sexual orientations and gender identity as a cause for disappearance, they rejected it. It was never considered a cause for detention. Two incidents are known where the military specifically went after the queer community, though there were probably many more. Before Argentina hosted the Soccer World Cup in 1978, the military implemented a so-called cleansing campaign. Military and police forces went out into the streets specifically to arrest homosexuals and publicly beat up everyone who put up a fight. But queer people were not just helpless victims of the regime. They organized resistance. Did you know that trans people had their own language in this country? Well, of course I hadn't known that before Tanya told me. But I did my research. Trans people in prison drew on a secret language called Karilche. Karilche was already used in the 1940s so that trans people could secretly warn each other against police forces. They had like words, phonetic words that meant, meant things. Mm -hmm. Kadulkri for weak, for example, or different things. Watch out for the police or different things. El Archivo de la Memoria Trans in Buenos Aires collects and archives the histories of trans people in Argentina. They aim to create a collective memory coming from the community so their stories won't get lost. But when it comes to the secret language of Carilche, they made a decision. They don't give out any detailed information about it, because Carilche is still being used today. And, well, if a secret language has a public dictionary, it's not that secret anymore. The long history of Carilche shows Argentina had a queer history before the dictatorship. There was a queer liberation movement. In 1967, the gay rights organization Nuestro Mundo was formed in Argentina. It is reputed to be the first one in all of Latin America. But the dictatorship interrupted all of that. We had to wait till 83, 85 so we could recover democracy. And then, the, like, this engine about, like, organization and political movements started again. Those political movements were heterosexual, you know, like, homophobic. There are a lot of experiences that old activists tell about, like, being literally expelled from their parties because they were gay. So that added, like, a, a different level of exclusion. We recovered democracy, but our community was still... Under the police authority, they were having the same practices that they were having in dictatorship. So that's why, for Argentina, the movement, let's say it's pretty new, you know, in a way. It started in the 90s. The shared generational trauma from all that oppression and reprisal still has an impact today. For example, El Archivo de la Memoria Trans is still working on recovering the histories of queers that went into hiding during the dictatorship. They're reconnecting people. The pictures that are being sent, other people recognize, you know, oh, I, I knew that person. I thought she was dead. But no, she wasn't. There's this kind of reconnection with this archive, which is, in a way, it's like repairing, you know, like this part of trauma starting to repair a little bit of all that damage. As you've probably noticed by now, Pablo knows a lot about the queer history of Argentina. He sees himself as deeply rooted in the queer community. He thinks that everyone should feel responsible for remembering and working on the shared history and trauma. But many queers, especially younger ones, don't seem to share that sentiment. 
Pablo is pretty frustrated by that because he knows how it used to be. When you couldn't go out to the streets because like people would attack you, you had to go to gay bars and like live your life inside those gay bars and be who you were only in those places. And that created culture. It created drag. It created, you know, different ways of sending those messages. And when you are more accepted and you have like more places to go, that kind of loses a little bit, I think. So do we need trauma to create community? Because Pablo is right. In many ways, being queer in Argentina today is easier than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Same-sex marriages have been legalized. Being trans is no longer criminalized. In fact, Argentina has one of the most progressive gender identity laws. You can hear why there is a gap between that law and reality in episode one of this podcast. With less oppression, you don't need the support of a reliable and strong community to survive. But then again, how strong the queer community feels today probably depends on your perspective. While I'm in Buenos Aires, I feel like the queer network there is huge and reliable and strong. For example, a lot of my queer friends actively spend most of their money within the community. You go to the queer hairdresser, the queer bar, the queer cafe, queer club, queer nesanong, queer clothing shop. But Pablo's point of view is very different from mine. Maybe because he actually knows about past fights and struggles. Because he remembers and has learned the names of the people who were killed and the stories that should be remembered, but aren't. Looking at young queers like me, I get why Pablo thinks we often fail to acknowledge our history. I guess it's understandable that I don't know about the Argentinian queer legends. I'm from Germany after all, but to be honest with you, I don't think I know that much about queer history in Germany either. And talking to Pablo makes me think, I probably should. For me, it's really important to acknowledge all our previous activists. I find it interesting to be able to recognize that they, you know, they started the way and we can move on because there was a previous path. And I would hope that new generations also do the same with us. I've talked to Pablo twice. In 2019, when we were sitting in the Pride Cafe in Buenos Aires, Pablo and I discussed the responsibility of younger queers a lot. When we talk again in 2021 on Zoom, he has a new and pretty direct influence on the younger generation. A lot has happened in his life, like a lot. I became a dad, which is one of the most wonderful things that ever happened to me. I'm absolutely astonished. Pablo has always wanted a child. For a large part of his life, he thinks this is impossible. Being a father and being gay doesn't really match in Argentina, where same-sex marriage and adoption are only legalized in 2010. Pablo is in his late 20s at the time. Now he considers adopting a child with his partner. But in 2015, they break up. And once we separated from each other, I was like, Oh my God, I'm like 34, 35. I'm single again. I really want to be a dad. And I have to like go through this all over again. Like first of all, meet someone. Then we have to be a couple. <laughs> Then we have to be stable enough to think about kids. See if he wants to have kids too. So it was like, oh my God, this is like a lot of work and I'm super anxious. I cannot deal with it. <laughs> Pablo starts to talk to his friends and family about wanting kids. And he realizes that he always thinks about a partner first, 
even though raising a kid is far more important to him than having a romantic partner. I'm reproducing a way of thinking about families. It's not necessarily the only one. So I was like, fuck, yeah, you're right. Let's inscribe myself on the adoption list. To be considered for adoption, Pablo has to talk to a family judge, social workers and psychologists. That's the standard procedure for everyone in Argentina. But as a single gay man, Pablo doesn't expect his chances to be very high. It takes two years. But in the end, the judge rules, yes, Pablo can adopt a child. Once you get that confirmation from the judge, it's just about waiting for the judge or the justice system to call you. It was going to be super hard for me to keep thinking of when is it going to happen? Am I going to get the call? When am I going to get it? It was like a lot of stress. So in a defensive way, I kind of forgot about it. I kept doing my life. Two years later, Pablo is sleeping in after a late night drag performance. He's just having a lazy, relaxing Sunday. But this Sunday is not a regular Sunday. In the first hours of the day, I got uh, a call from the judge. There was a kid in, in a hospital that was living in that hospital for the last 10 months. She was one year and 10 months. And that they were thinking of me to be her parent. This call is amazing. But Pablo doesn't want to get his hopes up. There are four other candidates. So he thinks, it's not going to happen. They won't choose me. They are going to pick a young, straight couple, the perfect little heterosexual family fantasy. But then his phone rings. It was the, the judge and she was like, Are you alone? And he was like, no, no, I'm with my mother. And she was like, great, because I wanted to tell you that you've been chosen to be Mia's dad. I kind of think it's like the, the exact moment when someone, you know, uses the pregnancy test and sees the two lines. It's like, oh my gosh, what? <laughs> what just happened? You know, like, my life is changing for real. That kind of moment. Mia has spent a year in the hospital because of health issues. So this is where Pablo and Mia meet for the first time. He's nervous, waiting in a hospital room until a nurse opens the door with this little child in her arm. The nurse hands Pablo the kid and they hug. It's a long, intense hug. And then Mia starts playing and looks at Pablo as if she wants him to join her. At the same time, Pablo's friends and family redo his entire apartment. They turn the flat of a single gay drag queen slash social worker into a home for a child. They gave her to me on a Friday. I did shows Friday nights and Saturday nights. Last week I was drunk in a, in a nightclub. And this week I'm saying goodnight to my daughter. The story of how Pablo became a gay single dad actually went a bit viral. If you Google single gay dad Argentina, you'll find several articles about him. They include photos of Pablo and Mia living their best life. Pablo couldn't be happier, and the two of them spend a lot of time in matching unicorn onesies. But being a single dad means that Pablo is pretty busy with, well, being a parent. So currently, Pablo has no time to volunteer for the Red Cross. He also has no time to perform as a drag queen. It's kind of hard to give up these parts of his life, at least for now. But instead, he now has a little girl who runs around wearing his wigs and who goes to Pride with him. I was supposed to be there in drag. 
and I couldn't, but I was there with my kid and with all my drag sisters. We have a lot of great pictures of her with my drag queen sisters. And it was like really crazy to see because you don't connect parenthood with drag queen. You really don't. I mean, I don't think people see drag artists as potential parents. It just seems like two entirely different worlds. But as Pablo proves, people can be a lot of very different things at the same time. Drag can be therapeutic, and drag artists can be parents. And for Pablo, both of these things have helped him heal, one way or another. It's like, I'm empowered, I have power, I'm powerful, I can do anything I want, I can become anything I want, I can talk to that hot guy without being embarrassed or whatever. All that power was always in you. I got to learn that, at least I tried to learn that, and it made me a better person. So both parenthood and being dragged are helping me right now to become a better person. So for me, parenthood, it's a little bit of fulfilling my own desire in a way, but also mainly helping her to have better opportunities and to be someone respectable, someone with dignity, someone free. I don't have a child. I don't really know anything about raising kids. But how Pablo talks about Mia, how he wants to support and inspire her, how she has helped him, it sounds pretty great. Especially because he's very open about not having all the answers. So you don't know what you're doing in a way. And you don't know if what you're doing right now will affect her in the future. Like, am I traumatizing this girl? Who knows? You know, it's like, let's hope for the best. It makes sense that Pablo is afraid of inflicting trauma. He's still dealing with his own, which is probably a lifelong journey, including a lot of trial and error. It could be doing drag, going to therapy, raising a child or finding a community. I guess you never really know what you're doing. And that is difficult and scary. But as Pablo shows, it is totally worth it. Do you remember what song you sang to make her sleep? Yeah, the one that I still sing to her. Can you sing it for me? <laughs> oh, yes. Um, it's called Arroro. It's in Spanish, of course. Arroro mi niña, arroro mi sol, arroro pedazo de mi corazón. Esta nena linda se quiere dormir y el picaro sueño no quiere venir. In our next episode, Armando Abruno. You can think the person that is entertaining who you want to offend and why, you know? And I'm actually, I don't want to offend the people that, that are, are always offended, you know? I don't want to make heterosis laugh, you know? <laughs> I really don't. I really don't want to, to do it. I want to, to make queer people laugh. Drag Stories is produced, written and edited by Mimimi Kollektiv. That is Filine Kreuzer, Lara Lorenz and me, Taina Grünzig. The music is composed by Music Shirt. Heinrich Jakunin edited the episodes. Lea Kimbinger is our creative director and responsible for our visuals. Itchy created my makeup for the photos. Special thanks to everyone who has supported us and to all the amazing drag artists that shared their stories with us. 
this podcast would not exist without you. To see what their photos and performances look like, follow us on Instagram at Drag Stories Podcast. If you like this podcast, please recommend it to your friends and review us on Apple Music or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps other people to find us. You can send us your stories and feedback on Instagram or via email to mimimicollective at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. 